Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Well, think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stott was born on 27th of April 1921. And in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Mennell, as month by month we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. Ben, come in. Hi. Shall I shut the door? How are you? I'm fine, how are you? Alright, nice to see you. I've just returned from a study trip to the United States and while there, I managed to pin down some time from his busy schedule to chat with Professor Jerem Bars. Originally from Britain, Jerem has taught at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis since 1989 and was recently appointed as the first Francis Schaeffer Chair in Apologetics. That's especially apt because he was a student of Schaeffer himself and was involved for many years in the English branch of the Labrie Fellowship, the ministry set up by the Schaeffers in Switzerland. Labrie is the French word for shelter, and in their home, the Schaeffers pioneered a remarkable ministry of communicating the gospel to skeptics and searchers through their generous hospitality in the home. Our regulars will remember the conversation I had a few episodes back with Greg Johnson, in which he discussed the extraordinary legacy of four leaders when it came to the sexuality debates. C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, John Stott and, of course, Francis Schaeffer. But because Jerem also got to know John well, I wanted to explore something of the relationship between Schaeffer and Stott, as well as just gleaning Jerem's own insight. So naturally I began by asking him if he remembered the first time he met John. It was extremely intimidating. <laughs> But it turned out fine, because this was the kind of person he was. What happened was, you know, I had read lots of his books and just loved them. And I guess the most recent one I had read right then, I had just bought his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. And I got it, it arrived the day I was going to Poland to, I did a lot of lecturing and preaching in Poland in the, in the uh, 70s late 70s and early 80s, before the fall of communism there. And I got a copy of this book and I and started reading on the plane. And I read it from cover to cover. I didn't stop till I... I didn't Did you go, get off the plane? Yeah, I didn't, get, I didn't <laughs> go to sleep that night in Poland in the house I was staying until I'd finished the book. Wow. I just was, I was so delighted by it, you know. It was such a helpful book. And... Such wonderful exposition. And I'd read quite a few others of his books as well, of course. Anyway, what happened? I preached a sermon on Remembrance Sunday one year in November. And for some reason, word of that got around. I mean, I was just a little church down in Hampshire. But uh, the IPC. This is when you were at Livery. Yeah, at the IPC there, mm. which we had founded in the area. And. As a consequence of that, I got invited to take part, and I don't know how he got hold of the, the sermon, but I got invited to take part in a three-part discussion on nuclear deterrence. Because in the sermon I had said, 
I felt that was necessary and just. And I think it was just after I'd come back from one of my trips to Poland where everybody ever met in Eastern Europe was very thankful for the West's deterrence towards the Soviet Union. Just very appreciative. And so I had spoken about this, how necessary that was given the nature of the Soviet Union at the time and saw it as part of the just war um, tradition. Well, the three-part discussion I was invited, a public discussion I was invited to take part in, had Alan Crider, who was the head of the London Mennonite Center. He's an American from Indiana. And therefore pacifist. Um, A pacifist. And then John took the traditional just war position. That's why I was so interested when you said he'd originally been a pacifist. Mm. By this time, he wasn't. He was defending the traditional just war position. And I took, but he was opposed to nuclear deterrence. And I took the position of defending nuclear deterrence. So I was very intimidated. I mean, the first time I met him, I have to disagree with him. Goodness. You know, this guy. By invitation. Yeah, by invitation, who I respect so highly. You know, and he really knew nothing about me. And, you know, I knew quite a bit about him, obviously. And, uh, and so that was intimidating. But it went very well. And he was so gracious, even though we disagreed uh, on the issue uh, fairly passionately. And as a consequence of that, we then had half a dozen of these meetings around the country. The same trio? Yeah, the same trio. And uh, and so I got to know him in that setting Mm. um, and very quickly stopped being intimidated. I mean, I never... uh, did anything but admire his intellect, his biblical uh, wisdom, uh, his personal graciousness, etc., um, and lots and lots of other things about him. But those debates were quite difficult because I was treated if I was some far right wing person, right. which I'm not, and I never have been. And uh, treated by people in not, the not by him, by people in the audience, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I remember one we did in Cambridge. I guess maybe it was in Trinity. Catherwood was the... Oh, um, Fred Catherwood. Fred, uh, Sir Fred Catherwood was the chairman of right. this thing. Um, he was a Conservative yeah, member of the European Parliament. That's right, at that time. And he honestly didn't handle it very well because the audience just attacked me and he didn't stop them. Right. Yeah, I remember one young man standing up and saying, I'm so sorry for I gather you have three sons, you must be just, it must be awful to have you as a father. You know, I just can't imagine how violent and domineering you are and things like this. You so know. they really knew you very well then. Yeah, you know, and this, this is people in the audience and, uh, you know, and he should have, he should have rebuked them, which he didn't. Yeah. And so I had to try to defend myself in that setting and say, no, you know, I, I, you misunderstand me completely. The right. fact that I have these convictions and in that context, I, I then spoke about Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. By that time, I'd been to Poland several times in Hungary. And everywhere I went, people were in favor mm-hmm. of Western deterrence. As uh, a any, Yeah, uh, anything to stop the Soviet Union uh, advancing any further. Right. And, and people wouldn't believe me when I said it, mm-hmm. uh, though they'd, they'd never been there. Um, So that was challenging, but John was always gracious, but we became friends through these. And then he asked me to serve on the board of of the uh, London Institute. 
So then I got to know him in a much more personal setting. Went to his flat several times. So the the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, LICC. Yes. So in the 70s, that's around the time that's kicking off, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So fairly early on. Mm. I I don't remember the date. I probably got it in my file Mm. somewhere when I got on the board, but it was fairly early on. But that gave me the opportunity to get to know John more personally. Mm. Um, And then as a consequence, I was invited to participate in various things on human life issues and so on, um, which he was chairing or or was encouraging or uh, those kinds of things and it also led to my getting asked to oh, I remember a couple of times he wasn't there but going to St. George's Chapel to a group of of some rather high-powered people oh, talking Windsor ab- Castle. yes talking about about um, nuclear deterrence issues mm. which led to a, a couple of books which I wrote essays in mm. Richard Balkum was the editor of one of them. And, but, you know, that was, that was how it all happened. Vicky and I were invited to his 70th birthday party, which mm. was uh, an honor. And, uh, and then he came here to St. Louis a couple of times mm. while we were here. And when he's working on, say, nuclear deterrence or whatever, or in the 70s, you know, preaching about whether Christians can go on strike and things, yes. there's hardly anybody else at that level, doing that kind of work, really. So this leads to issues facing Christians today Yes, coming out. I yeah. mean, had, had you, did you know of others who were doing this kind of thing? Perhaps Francis Schaeffer was probably one of the few, was he? Yeah, Schaeffer was, you know, talking about all sorts of things mm-hmm. uh, all the time. And uh, he wasn't only addressing issues like abortion no. and infanticide, but all sorts of other issues as well, international issues and so on. Um, it ended up with him, for example, uh, writing one section of a book in which Vladimir Bukovsky, who was a, a non-Christian Russian dissident who was exiled to the West, also uh, wrote wrote some things about mm. the importance of freedom and mm. and the pro, you know, problems in the Soviet Union. And you know, Schaefer was addressing the those same kinds of issues. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Schaefer was involved in all sorts of issues, anything which he thought you know, was you know, God's word had anything to say about it all. What do you think led John to sort of roaming far and wide? Because he'd come out of quite a pietistic... Yeah, I understand. ...sort of, you know, Christian youth camp culture, yes. admit, believe, come and go to heaven type of thing. So yeah. suddenly by the 70s particularly, he's roaming far and wide. What, yes. How do you think that came about? Um, you know, I don't know him well enough to know, but I, I think it's just a natural consequence of really studying the Bible. Right. You know, once you believe God's word is true, anything it speaks to is important, uh, and it's not possible to read the scriptures without seeing it. It's addressing every aspect of human life, not only in the Old Testament law, but everywhere else. Right. As soon as you take it seriously, and you take Paul's word seriously that you know, scriptures are, are written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, you have to take the Old Testament seriously. And it has a lot to say about all kinds of issues of justice, 
and so on. You can think of the, the wonderful section in Alec Matir's commentary on the book of Amos, where he's looking oh, at... Oh, in the Bible Speaks of Day Yeah, well. in, the, in God's judgment on the nations around Israel, and not because they've disobeyed God's commandments, but, but they've disobeyed basically the natural law. Mm. So I, th I think anybody like Alec Matir or John Stott, who's taking the Bible seriously, is going to have to start addressing all the issues that are up for grabs in the culture. Jeremy explained how Francis Schaeffer also tackled wider contemporary issues and in fact did so right from the early days of his ministry. He'd come from a non-Christian home, though his parents did attend from time to time a pretty liberal church. Schaeffer was converted mainly through reading the book of Genesis and subsequently, of course, the whole Bible. He felt a call to ministry and Jerem told me what he got up to during his time at college. He got to know the janitor at the college, who was black, of course, in those days, mostly today still, and, uh, and became very good friends with him. He, and he was a deacon in a local Baptist church across the fields, so every week Schaefer would walk across the fields and teach the kids in this church. And then got very close to this man and went to visit him when he became ill and was dying and uh, and would read the Bible to him and pray with him. And I had a black student in the class, Tony, um, who's a pastor here in St. Louis, planted a church up in North St. Louis somewhere. And he suddenly stopped me and he said, Jerem, when was this? This was 1950s. And I said, no, this was in the 1930s. He just started weeping. Mm. And nobody had ever taught Schaefer about issues of race. He just read the Bible. Mm. And so he thought, yeah, of course you treat people with decency and integrity because they're made in the image of God. Goodness. So that's who he was from the beginning, you know. And if it was bad in the 50s and 60s, it was much worse in the 30s. Yes, exactly. Yep. Goodness. Yep. So Tony was just deeply moved. I mean, it was uh, very, very, it was just beautiful. But you could, I could tell so many stories like that about Schaefer. So mm. from very early on, you know, he was speaking into uh, all kinds of issues just because he saw that the Bible did, does. And then once Labrie began, you know, in the middle 50s, they moved to Switzerland in 19... 48 and settled there mm -hmm. you know, with nothing to go to you know, just starting from scratch uh, absolutely scratch he went with the commission to strengthen the things that remain mm. he'd gone over in 1947 for a three or four month trip the mission board of the denomination sent him you know, here's right after the war there's no contact basically mm. between America and Europe to find out what was happening to the state of the church. It was a wasteland, I guess. Yeah, and everywhere he went, there were still just crowds of refugees all over the place, you yeah. know, bombed cities. He went as far east as Czechoslovakia, which wasn't yet quite taken over by the Russians. That was the next year. Yeah. And then up into Scandinavia, all over Britain and down into Italy, and just all over the all over Europe. And he wrote letters back about what he was seeing there 
which are just very interesting letters. And um, you know, everywhere he went, um, you know, he was meeting with Christians. He had a few addresses and names that he'd written to ahead of time, but he tried to find them as well, just because this is who he was. Wherever he had the opportunity, he would share the gospel with people on trains, on buses, you know, in the cities. And as well, because of Edith, he had been introduced to the arts. And so he would go and visit all these buildings and galleries and churches all over Italy and everywhere else he went in every spare minute he'd got. So he was just having this wonderful sort of art history education as well, just by himself on his travels. And then when they started Labrie, you know, after they'd been in Switzerland and they founded the International Presbyterian Church right away, long before Labrie began, mm. just for the people who were becoming Christians through their lives there, mm. which led to them being thrown out of Switzerland, they, they, uh, which was what led to the beginning of Labrie, what had happened in the village where they lived in Champery, which is in a Catholic canton, the canton of Valais. Um, one of the men he got to know was a local um, ski instructor and uh, George Exonry and who was you know who was rather a heavy drinker an atheist from a Catholic family and he was converted through Schaefer and then became part of this old church the International Presbyterian Church and became one of its first elders and his family was so outraged they appealed to the bishop and the Schaefers were thrown out of the country having a religious influence. And that's how they ended up moving across. You know, they made an, an appeal to the government and the, and the government, because the government, the central government threw them out as well as the cantonal government. They appealed to the central government and they said, well, if you can find uh, a community in a, in a Protestant canton, which will have you, uh, but you've got to do it by such a date. Wow. And they had almost no time. And there's a, it's a series of extraordinary miracles in terms of what happened. And that led to Waymo? Yeah. Well, they found this chalet in Waymo. And this was the day before they were due to leave. And um, the, uh, as the real estate agent was driving off, he said to Edith, by the way, this isn't for rent, this is for sale. Well, they had no money. But uh, the next morning, just before they left, the postman came and he bought to them a check for $10,000 from this couple in Iowa or something. I've met them years later. And they just felt compelled. They got up in a storm in the night to send this check to the Schaefer's. He'd got this bonus from his work and they were going to do something personal with it. And, uh, and then they suddenly said, no, we need to send it to the Schaefer's. And, wow. uh, you know, and I, we don't know what for, but we'll send it to them. So they got up in the night and drove them to a local town where there was a post office where they could still send something Amazing. and sent it off and it arrived just in time and that was the damn payment they made on this house mm. but once Labrie began people were coming from everywhere asking questions mm. and you know non-christians don't limit their questions they ask about anything right. about every issue of justice and racial issues mm. and everything you can imagine and so Schaefer was just answering those questions, always on the basis but Christianity is true. immersion in the scriptures that would go anywhere yes. meant that he was ready and willing to dive in. Yeah, that's what he was already doing, of course, because yeah. he was already, 
you know, some of one of the other the other first elder early elder of that church was a, a Czech man who was converted through the Schaefers um, who had had to leave after the the Russians came mm. in and so yeah he was people were asking him political and mm. and social issues from the beginning but he would always address those from the beginning because that's that's just who he was in terms of the way he regarded the Bible so there was never a, a pietist element in his thinking at any time though there was this deep spirituality mm. um, there from the beginning it partly Edith it was part of his life as a brand new Christian he just took the Bible seriously and said to pray so he prayed and expected God to answer just a few days before my conversation with Jerem I'd actually taught a class at the seminary uh, for Jerem and his colleague Mark Ryan about John Stott and his legacy and mentioned during the course of that lecture the difficult relationship that John had with his own father and that chimed with the experiences that Schaefer had with his. When he went to college you know his father said I don't want you to go I don't want a son who's going to be a minister so he was going in this pre-ministerial track and and oh, he said, Dad, wait a moment while I make up my mind. Finally, he went down to the basement and he prayed and he tossed a coin. And God, if you want me to go, you know, make it heads. Goodness. And he did it a couple of times. And he went upstairs, I've got to go. Were they reconciled? Yes. Yeah, his, his father went out, slammed the door and then poked it back in and said, I'll pray, pay for the first semester. Oh, my goodness. Because there's an interesting parallel in the difficult, mm. not straightforward relationships that both Schaefer mm. and Stott had with their fathers yeah. over precisely this issue of them being in ministry. Yeah, well, exactly. I was very moved when you shared that the other day. And later on, when Schaefer was in his first pastorate, um, his father had some kind of stroke and he got an urgent message, telegram saying, please come. So he came and he shared the gospel. Goodness. His father asked him to, he said, tell me about this Jesus. Well, because with John, he was doing university missions in Australia. Mm. And so there was no way he could get back for the funeral or anything. Oh. Very difficult. Oh, that's miserable. Um, one thing that struck me, and you can correct me because I, I, I may have got this wrong, but my I had picked up, and I'm not entirely sure where from, that there was a degree of suspicion between Stott and Schaefer. That they were just coming from different things, different angles, but that actually they they converged perhaps, say, on issues of life. Yeah, um, not really, I don't think. No. Um, what, what did happen was this. Martin Lloyd-Jones was part of this kind of separatist yeah. group so after in, the in England. 1966. Yes. And was then very critical of people like John for staying in the Anglican Church. Right. And Schaefer pled with him not to. Pled with? M with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Not to critique. Not to, not to be so dismissive huh. and negative about them. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, Schaefer was a separatist. I mean, that was part of the church he was in here. 
which was necessary. I mean, the church had become completely liberal mm. and, you know, had the, actually the evening Schaefer and Edith met, they were at uh, a, a talk given in an evening by a pastor in Philadelphia, I suppose. Um, in a Presbyterian church? I'm not sure, probably. But, uh, and the, the title of the talk was why I don't believe that Jesus is God and I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. That was right. the talk. And, you know, both of them stood up and asked questions and then asked the friends they were with, Who, who's that young woman? Who's that young man? <laughs> place to be. Yeah, just on the battlefield, you know, and she came from this very conservative theological background where her father was friends with all these professors at Westminster and was a teacher of Greek himself after they came back from China. They were in the China in the mission where, which is where she was born. And you know, spent her first few years there. So very strong emphasis on spirituality coming from Hudson Taylor. Right. Actually the most influential person on them both was Amy Carmichael. Mm. You know, they would often read from her books about mm. prayer and fasting and Fellowship. Yes, exactly. They had a very close relationship with them. Just going back to, to Schaefer and Stott then, they're coming at similar conclusions from actually very different journeys. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, I, Schaefer only spoke positively about him. Hmm. Did they share platforms much? Did they do things together? Do you know? Um, I don't know. You know, we, uh, they probably weren't asked to. Mm. You know, as they moved in different circles. Of and when Schaefer would come to the UK, he'd get asked to speak at student group meetings, ministries like. Um, Intervarsity, don't Yeah, and also George Verwer's ministry. OM, Operation yeah, Mobilization. That, there's a lovely story about that. You may have seen it. You know, Schaefer arrives late at night at this place in London where they're going to be having this conference that uh -huh. weekend. And, you know, everybody's already gone to bed and this young man comes out who's one of the organizers and welcomes him in. Schaefer doesn't say who he is. Um, he hasn't had dinner, so this guy gets him some bread and butter and jam and mm -hmm. bits and pieces from the kitchen and then, you know, gives him a mattress on the floor. The next day gets into terrible trouble. <laughs> from the organizers because he doesn't ask, you know, you're our speaker. <laughs> and Schaefer doesn't say, you know, it's just typical of him. Yeah. And, and John would have been the same, wouldn't yeah, he? Exactly. You know, I, you know, one thing I'd say about John, I mean, he was always so neat mm -hmm. and tidy, but when you got close to him, you could see his suits were threadbare. Yes. You know, and his shoes were worn down and they were old, even though they were polished. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could see he was just not spending a cent on himself more mm -hmm. than he had to. It was... Uh... So did you, focusing on John again, did you stay in touch with him through the years? I mean, were you yes. in touch with him towards the end? Yeah, I wrote to him a couple of times mm -hmm. when he was in that retirement place. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, yeah, yeah, so yes, I did. But, uh, and he came here a couple of times. Mm. And so we, you know, we had him preach in chapel. And what do you think would be his personal legacy for you? Both through the relationship and friendship you had, but in terms of his witness and modeling the Christian life. Yeah, well, I think his, 
His extraordinary graciousness and modesty, um, his personal modesty um, and humility. Mm. Those were beautiful things. And, you know, as I told you, I was completely intimidated the first time I met him, but he just set me so immediately at ease, mm. immediately at ease by the way he treated me personally. Um, and I just appreciated that greatly. So he's just a model of gentleness and kindness, modesty and humility, and that I, I just treasure. Mm. And I think his biblical exposition is just masterful. Mm. If there was one book, say the students here at Covenant, um, you were wanting them to read of his, where would you point them, do you think, to get well, to know his? Yeah, it depend where I was, probably The Cross of Christ, yep. which I think is such an important book. Mm. Um, and that's still on um, reading lists and things, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. Um, I think for our students in apologetics, you know, we're having them write this basic gospel because we suddenly have people who have never shared the gospel with anybody and don't really know quite what they believe. Hmm. I think they would be typical, the people in that class, of Christians in the pew who have very little idea of what they actually believe or why mm. they believe it. Um, because apologetics is totally missing in most churches, mm. um, even in ones with good, with good preaching. So I think, yeah, I mean, I, I would, for many of them, I'd say basic Christianity would be a good place to start for them. You know, th these are the basics of the gospel. Um, do you understand them? Do you believe them? Um, but yeah, I think the cross of Christ or one of his commentaries, like uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which mm. I thought was just wonderful. Mm. Because that makes it so clear, even though you can read lots of commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, which are sort of pietistic, mm. because these are very personal things. But that book is not pietistic at all. No. Isn't it, um, isn't it subtitled something like God's New Kingdom or yeah, God's exactly. New Society? Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. That, yeah. yeah, I mean, it immediately has all kinds of social implications. Yeah. It's just a wonderful book. So. I mean, I think that was one of the things that I'm so struck by in him is how fearless he was in going wherever the Bible pushed him to go. Yes. Jerem, thank you so much. This has been a joy. Um, mm. I would happily sit here all day, but mm. you have classes to teach. I do. <laughs> People to, to help and, and so on, but uh, this has been a joy. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I just love John, mm. and uh, so did Vicky, and... Uh, I just think he was just a model of godliness and of all kinds of beautiful things. I mean, I have met so few Christians who are not materialistic at all. Right. And he wasn't materialistic he really at all. Mm. And the Schaeffers weren't either. Mm. And there are many things that are parallel about their lives. Yes, that's fascinating. Um, but I think it's for both of them, you know, it's because they were taking God's word so seriously. And seeking to live under it. You know, later, one funny thing is the Schaeffers had such a strong emphasis on prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit that lots of people who came to the Brie just assumed lots of Pentecostals and uh, Charismatics assumed that they were secret Charismatics who had been baptized in the Holy Spirit but wouldn't say so because of the church circles in which they moved. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it wasn't true, but it was. But they were so gracious to everybody, you know, whatever their and church affiliation. They couldn't be boxed and labelled. No, that's right. 
For our prayer point this time, it would be great if you could pray for our Langham scholars. Now, one of the hallmarks of the program is that all those who receive funds pledge right from the very start that once they've completed their doctorates, they return home either to their own country or certainly to the region in order to teach and develop and grow leaders for that context. So many uh, too often come to study in the West particularly and then feel disinclined for whatever reason to, to return home. And so therefore the church that they're from fails to benefit. So please do pray that all those who have completed their PhDs would go back to their context and find quickly their feet, find ways to be useful and beneficial to not just building up their institutions where they teach and the students, but actually having an impact wider afield that the church and communities that those churches find themselves will be built up as a kind of ripple effect as a result of people coming home to serve in this way. Thank you so much for listening to The Stott Legacy. Thank you also to my Langham Partnership colleagues who have helped to make this podcast a reality. And special thanks to Vic Marseille from Langham Partnership UK and Ireland for all her hard work in editing and producing each episode. Please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, recommend it to friends, and above all, tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.